Hey, hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Folkcraft Revival Podcast. It's been quite a while. Um, life's been crazy, and I apologize for not giving you more to listen to. I, um, well, a couple of life updates. First of all, we had another kid. Woohoo! So there's been that, and then I've been on overtime for the last uh, three months trying to get a bunch of stuff cranked out at work. And then my dog got lung cancer and, um, we had to put her down. So it's been a rough, it's been a, a highs and lows over the last couple of months. Um, anyways, for this episode, I'm chatting with Scott Sutton, um, also known as the pigment hunter. He's at, uh, pigmenthunter.com and on Instagram as at pigment hunter. Our, our conversation kind of ranges from, you know, sourcing color and his, his journey, um, and explorations in, uh, sourcing color from the landscape around him and creating his own, uh, paints. Primarily he's a painter, an artist, and he kind of progressed from painter to making his own paints to, uh, trying to be a little more in touch with the ingredients that he uses, um, and the, the colors that he sources. So, uh, he began sourcing his own pigments for the paints, um, primarily mineral colors from the landscape around him and, uh, learning to be more in touch with the landscape and, uh, his local area. So that's uh, kind of what our conversation revolves around is Scott's journey and looking for colors and, uh, and then as well, his philosophies on, uh, kind of taking a look at the at how you source the materials and ingredients in in his work specifically, but in life in general, and trying to live uh, a little bit more in touch with the knowledge of where your ingredients are, where the materials in your life are coming from, and how ethically they've been produced. So I really enjoyed chatting with Scott. Um, in fact, it was been really good getting back onto this whole podcast thing i'm really excited to dive into a couple more uh interviews it's it's been missed i i really enjoy chatting with people so uh this is episode 34 so any links to resources mentioned or uh, anything like that will be found over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash 34 and uh yeah i really appreciate you tuning back in as a reminder, uh, along those lines, just since I have a historically have a bad track record of putting out episodes, just do yourself a favor and uh, subscribe. That way, you actually know when an episode comes out. Yeah, let's uh, let's go dive into the episode. We started out. Um, I had asked Scott to kind of quickly define what a what we're talking about when we're talking about natural pigments. Well, I mean, basically, you know, natural pigments, you know, they're, they're found in their natural state um, in terms of more raw materials, whether it be geologically based or botanically based. So both either minerals or plants, of course, there's, you know, lichens and mushrooms and all that stuff, which yeah. is a whole other realm. But, um, 
but yeah, so, I mean, you know, anything I would consider non-natural still comes from natural materials, but then have to be processed, um, you know, and simplified down to certain kind of like elemental chemicals, right. That they get recombined you know, in a lab or whatever to make a, like a synthetic pigment. So yeah, even, you know, the, the synthetic pigments of course are, are made out of natural stuff. But a lot of them do stem from, um, more hydrocarbon petroleum based, um, ingredients, um, which again, also, I guess you could consider natural, but I think, it, um, at some point, you know, when you start to like isolate and remove compounds to a certain extent, you know, then it kind of becomes, um, has more cultural influence in terms of, you know, processing and, um, making it something different than what it exists in nature or as natural, that is an interesting um, so, thing to point out, though, the simple fact that everything we consider synthetic and man-made and whatnot is natural-based at some point. It's just how far back and how far removed you are from the natural material you started with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even a lot of plant-based stuff. Um, so even like, you know, most of my background has been in, you know, looking for the, the mineral pigment side of things, and, and a lot of those are just naturally occurring clays and mudstones, siltstones, sandstones, um, which nature has essentially broken down rocks, right, to harder rock surface material to create these more soil sediment-based materials, which, you know, have color and they're easier to make a paint out of than, you know, yeah. just a, a hard rock that has to be ground down that hasn't been weathered by nature um, you know, it has to be processed, you know, more so by, you know, human hands. Um, and even the mudstones and stuff still have to be, you know, ground into a mortar pestle and sifted to whatever pigment size, you know, before you start adding different binders to make paints um, or inks or whatever. Uh, or what what do you mean those. by a mudstone? Just real quick. So, I mean, mudstone. So, basically, mudstones... Um, Siltstone, sandstone, those are all sedimentary-based um, geological formations that occur from the weathering of, you know, whether it be with water, snow, wind, um, you know, chemical weathering um, in terms of, you know, air. You know, there's different things that can happen yeah. in nature. But those, those minerals in the mountains get broken down by these things and they get carried down usually, you know, with water, um, into bodies of water, into like a lake or an inland sea. Um, and those things, those minerals that become sediments that then get transported, you know, by these natural forces such as water um, and or wind or different things. But, you know, a lot of cases, water will carry those things down into the valleys, right. Or into the low areas. Yeah, and essentially, if you imagine like a mud puddle after a rainstorm, you know, has these materials that have been carried into that mud puddle um, of sediments, and the really fine stuff stays suspended um, in the water, and then the heavier stuff sinks first, right? Yeah, and then there's medium grain stuff that will 
settle on top of the bigger green stuff. And then the finest stuff will eventually settle down on top of, um, you know, those other layers. So mudstone is basically like, kind of like, I guess you could almost call it like more of a claystone, but it's the finest particle size material that then settles, um, you know, in, in that body of water. And it's, so it's, it's a naturally occurring process of, um, levigation where the, the, the pigments, you know, like you can cut clay, put it in a jar of water, shake it up, and then you can see any of those particles, the bigger particles settling first, and then the very fine stuff staying suspended. So yeah. it's like nature's like doing its own filtration of, of particles based on size. And so mudstone's the finest size, and siltstone would be like a little bit bigger particle size. And then sandstone, of course, has more like sand, so a bigger particle than the siltstone. And then okay. you kind of get into more like, you know, other stuff like, you know, rocks and gravel or conglomerates of stuff. And so, you know, ideally, like, you know, if you want to do, if you want to collect something where nature's, you know, one, it's done the work in terms of making the color and making the geology, <laughs> but it's also kind of naturally like helps you refine that material, right? Yeah, that makes you sense. Know? I was just curious. I've, you know, I'm familiar with sandstone, but, you know, spent a fair amount of time in Southern Utah and whatnot. I've just never heard the term mudstone before. So I was curious if that was like an actual rock or if that was like an intermediary step somewhere in between mud and rock or, or what, but yeah, it sounds like then a, a lot of your pigments then are coming from natural colored clays then. Yeah, um, pretty much. I mean, I, I don't really have too many precious uh, mineral. I mean, whatever you want to call it, you know, like things that would maybe be more used for gemstones or for jewelry making, you know, like, I mean, I, you can find, azurite and malachite and turquoise and that kind of stuff but a lot of those things um, occur in places where there of course there's prop private property with with mine mine claims and stuff but even yeah. those you know i mean azurite and malachite have been used for years you know and um and turquoise could also be ground down potentially for a pigment but um but preferably you know for me i think that the you know, the, you know, that whole market is kind of like <laughs> a black market of sorts, you know, it's like, it's hard to know, like where your, where your gemstones are coming from. If you're not collecting them yourself, you know, like you can get stuff from around the world and it's hard to know who's, who's mining it. What, how is it leaving the landscape? Um, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. And so even pigments, you know, and that's really kind of what got me into collecting the pigments um, in part is because I was making paints with pigments that I was buying for a long time um, as oil paints for my own art and then kind of sold some for a while. This is back in early 2000 when I was making oil paints here in Taos and trying to sell them before I went back to, to Oregon. And at some point I kind of just kind of got to the point where I was like, I don't really want to make paints necessarily for other people. I'd rather just teach people how to make their own paints yeah, I, I went back to Oregon in like 2003, and then um, ended up getting involved had an opportunity to work with the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, which ended up becoming like a four, almost five year kind of job as an independent contractor. I was essentially teaching paint making as part of the Lifeways class for to the tribal members, so they already had like carving and beading. Um, in other classes, but there wasn't really a focus on any 
painting or let alone paints made with, you know, locally collected materials. And so, yeah. So that's like triggered a lot and it gave me more time to really, to think about those things, you know, and the impacts of, again, the mining industry, you know, for whether or not they're mining for, because there's lots of ochre uh, mines, you know, in France and Spain that are, you know, also, you know, they extract out large amounts of material out of the ground. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, some mines have a bigger impact on the land than others in terms of leaving creating residue or pollution or whatever. But, but nonetheless, um, you know, the pigments I was buying before, whether they were naturally occurring iron oxide minerals that were coming from, you know, France or Spain, or if it was lapis lazuli, it pretty much is only coming from like Afghanistan or Chile, yeah. you know, like if you wanted that blue. And so, I mean, these things have been traded for, 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 you know, generations, you know, you know, from, from the middle East to Europe to, you know, even here in the U S you know, some of the, the different cinnabars and ochres and different things were traded by the indigenous cultures here, you know, things, you know, everything kind of has like is special to each place. And if you don't have a certain color from a certain place, then you would try to trade or, or acquire it through another source, you know, but anyway, so my whole point with all that is that, and so I think, you know, that was the biggest question for me was like wondering like where, the source of your ingredients. Yeah, I was like, where, you know, where is it coming from and what's that impact, right? And so if you don't know where it's coming from and who it's impacting, then, you know, it, it just changes the game of, of if you really want to be rooted in place and be sustainable, um, you know, it's just, yeah, you, you just want to know its origins and how it, you know, how it was grown or how it's harvested or, you know, who did that work and, were they paid a living wage, you know, were they treated with a healthy environment for them? So, yeah. So I think that, you know, the pigment hunting really became more about trying to like, you know, reduce your radius of your own footprint of resources. Um, I think that's part of what motivated me to, or interests me in starting the podcast and in chatting with people and the types of things I'm chatting about. Um, uh, not necessarily the reduce your impact, although that's important, but the fact of understanding how things go from raw material to finished product and what actually goes into making the things that you're using every day. I think that's a a fairly important one in my mind. I, I like to know what's actually what actually goes into what's in my home. Sure, what I have sure. around. And that same same obviously goes with you know, most people think about that just when they're, you know, consuming food, you know, do you support, do you care? Do you, do you want to support local farmers? And, you know, because we're essentially shipping water from different watersheds across the world, you know, like, you know, that's the main weight of, of a vegetable is the water. (laughs) And it's of course got minerals like in the soils, but so we're essentially, you know, we're shipping like cellular, 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 material in the form of food, different, you know, whether it be fruits or veggies, you know, back and forth across the world, you know, from different watersheds crossing boundaries. And, you know, and so it's, yeah, I think that for me, I mean, even yet as, you know, and my other focuses are also around healthy living and natural building and wanting to have 
as minimal processed materials, um, you know, in a building, um, you know, and also, and then, you know, trying to find more local materials, you know, whether it be like using local Adobe here in yeah. New Mexico, local timber post and beam, because right now timber prices are, you know, three oh, times the price of what they and Yeah. It's ridiculous, you know, and then of course concrete and stuff comes from different places, you know, and, um, and even lime, I mean, it's all, we all use the roads, the concrete, you know, the, the lime, the sand and gravel that comes from different places, you know, or support our cities. And, you know, even if we bicycle, we are still on concrete we're on still the on asphalt. Yeah. We're still, we, we all contribute to all of this, right? <laughs> even our phones are made out of mineral elements and stuff, you know, that are coming from different places. So it's, we can't, you know, regardless of who we are and what culture we come from, we're all contributing to this global system that, you know, that we, we exist in today. It's just, it's our reality, you know? So how do we, how can you control anything beyond the decisions that you use in terms of supporting local farmers or collecting local materials to build your own home with rather than using, you know, fiberglass insulation or that's, you know, made somewhere or, you know, plywood that's coming from somewhere. I'm, I'm almost wanting to shift away from even buying two by fours from Ace hardware or Lowe's or whatever, even for a hempcrete building, which I'm interested in building with and doing like lime and clay, you know, yep. to plaster with local stuff. So it's not just about fine art um, for me. No, it doesn't make sense too when you get into things like that because uh, really, if if you live in New Mexico, trees are hard to come by. Uh, so moving yeah. away from timber in general, moving more towards adobe or something like that, uh, really does make a whole lot more sense for your environment just based on the materials you have available. Up here in Montana, Northwest Montana, we have tons of trees, and I could see why people would build timber homes because trees grow like weeds over here, and you're you know really, really dense forest most of the time. So it's a readily available resource, but in an area like New Mexico, that's not very available for you. No, in Northern Mexico is a little bit better off than like other places in New Mexico. Um, you know, there's definitely like, there's uh, actually a, just up in um, Alamosa Valley, there's a couple of lumber mills. There's actually an Amish family that runs one and, you know, and they, you can get milled post and beams and stuff. Um, yeah, cool from local, uh, you know, standing dead spruce and, and also other, I think they have some fur and other stuff. So like, you know, and, and of course the Pueblos here, you know, they, they, yeah, they used Adobe brick for the walls, but they also used still had the around for the roofs to support the roofs, you know, and, and, yeah. they, and had they not had those ponderosas or whatever, you know, trees to use to support the flat roofs, they might have hit their culture might have have had evolved into doing arches. Like, you know, you think about like places like Iran where they maybe didn't have trees. And so they made arches and domes. Right. Yeah. Whereas here they had, you know, access to some trees. And they also, a lot of the, the old Pueblos were, you know, kind of situated one out of floodplains and up against, you know, more year round streams or, they're coming around out of the mountains, but we're also at the foot of the mountains so that you have, you do have trees because you're kind of in that transition zone from like what would have been, you know, now is a lot of sage. Um, well, it's more like grassland plateau, 
you know, but there's plenty of ponderosa and, and other trees along the waterways know, too. Yeah. Along the waterways. I mean, usually the ponderosa is kind of like that transition, you know, at the foothills of the Sangre de Cristos or the Rockies. And, and that's really what, what cultures, every culture in the world is unique because of the resources that were around them that, that manifested the world of, of that culture. Right. And, and so each culture, like the housing, the clothing, you know, the, what, if you want to call it art back then by the term <laughs> art didn't even exist mm. as like a art thing. Cause it was just, it was all, everything was like a work of art of sorts, you know, yeah. but those things like every culture in the world is unique because of the materials that were around them and, and how they, you know, managed to work with those materials to create the society that, you know, that they developed, you know? And so and I think that's for me, when I got involved with the Grand Ron tribe, uh, the Confederate tribe of Grand Ron and teaching them paint making classes, you know, I ended up spending like three months just doing research um, reading books. I didn't have a lot of like elders or people to talk to, you know, so I was, I was going through a lot of old ethnographic texts yeah, to, to learn about culture and stuff. Um, and some of that knowledge is, you know, the, the tribes or cultural groups that existed, you know, of course on East and West coast. Um, I mean, they all got impacted by people coming over from Europe and, you know, colonizing and acquiring, you know, taking land or, or being given land by the King of Spain is given someone like, Oh, you can have this chunk of land or whatever. Um, but all that like essentially led to kind of, of course, where we're at now, but um, a lot of the cultures that were more along the ocean bodies. I mean, that's of course where most of the big cities that exist, right. Or near, near water, right? Near rivers or near the ocean because of transport or whatever. And so inland in the U.S., you know, like whether it be Montana or New Mexico, you know, the cultural, the indigenous cultures are a little bit more, I think, have more of their knowledge intact. And in, in, in particular, with the Grand Ronde, they were stripped of, of their recognition as a tribe, by the U S government for like 30 years between the fifties and the eighties. And so not only did they lose culture because before the reservation, before they lost land and before they lost, you know, were forced onto reservations, they also, you know, lost, you know, a second wave of kind of culture because they were then taken away from the land that they were given you know, and then there's just, I mean, it doesn't take long before, you know, a generation or two, you know, before certain stories are lost, you know, or certain languages are lost or certain knowledge of where certain materials exist are lost. So then you have to like, you know, kind of re-engage with those places to try to, you know, find those materials. And so when I was working at the Grand Ron, we were, I wasn't just purely going out and looking for mineral pigments. I was helping my friend Greg um, to identify places to harvest cattail or tule or cedar bark. And so we were visiting spots in the national forest or BLM or other public lands that were managed by different agencies and, you know, kind of creating relationships 
to go and be able to harvest those things for the cultural life waste classes of the, you know, the Confederate tribes of Grand Ron. And yeah. so that was kind of opened up my eyes to a lot of things, you know, one learning about the tribe's history and the culture and how they were impacted. And, and then also learning about the plants and learning about, you know, the plant communities and the ecosystems that exist in. And, um, and then the minerals, you know, first I just, you know, started exploring, looking for, colors just of what i could see like what was visible um at you know, this point how long had you been making your own paints with with synthetic pigments i did my undergrad from 94 to 98 at oregon state university and um in, in corvallis and my professor sandy brooke she was my painting professor back then and she got me into making my paints because it was just, I was using a lot of paint and, and she's like, Oh, you should just make your own. It'd be more affordable. And it's a higher quality because they put like chalk, like fillers and paints, yeah. especially student grade. They're just loaded with chalk. Um, okay. So they get muddier quicker. They they have less vibrancy because there's less refraction of light through pigment particles because you have all this like 80% chalk, you know, <laughs> in your paint. So that's kind of why I started making the paints originally. And that was probably around 96 um, that I started making my own paints in 1996. So you'd been making your own paint for 10 years or whatnot before you started teaching this paint making uh, life. Yeah. Yeah. Around 2004, I think, you know, it was 2000 is when I started working really with the Confederate tribes of Grand Ron. And so that's where I really started to like, look for local materials and, and consider, you know, look at think about that, you know, from a cultural perspective. Um, and, you know, so really, yeah, it's around, you know, like I said, here in Albuquerque or New Mexico, like I, you know, I started to like see the, the color in the land and then like, Oh, well, especially like Georgia O'Keeffe, like in these people that came out to the Southwest to paint the land, it's like, well, it makes sense. Why would you try to use a synthetic pigment? and match the color of the soil when you could just essentially <laughs> collect soil, right? And paint with it. And so she never did that, you know? Um, and so it's, it's interesting to kind of think about, especially with like plain air painters that who do go out and paint in the land. And, you know, of course there's the sky and the trees and stuff that aren't made up of the pigments from the soil that you also are trying to, to match, you know, match and reflect those colors. But, but at least, you know, you, you know, some of that stuff could have easily been substituted for the synthetic pigments, you know, and hmm. that are, you know, being used in modern day paints. And yeah, so, you know, so yeah, I started really making paints quite a while ago and then transitioned into the earth pigments in 2004. So that's been like a, I guess, whatever, a 16 plus year journey. And a lot of it was just focused on teaching. And then in two, when the economy went, in 2009 went bad. Um, I essentially, the, the life waste classes kind of were getting cut a little bit because of the lack of funds from yeah. coming in from revenue from casino or whatever. And so some of the classes kind of ended around that time. And so I transitioned and, you know, and it was like, well, what should I do? And so I, at the time I was working on a playground project at a school in Portland where I was integrating art and the cultural stories of the, of the Grand Ron tribe into a, like a public art project that was woven into the play, a new playground design. And so I, at that point I was getting really interested in not just doing traditional fine art, um, at such as painting and kind of thinking about like public art and 
land art and landscape architecture and like thinking about playgrounds as being like a work of art or a skate park as being like a work of art rather than just, um, you know, and create like an educational outdoor garden within a, a school <clears throat> playground. So that's kind of what ended up directing me to, to come back to New Mexico in 2009 to 12 to essentially study the, for a master's in landscape architecture at UNM. And that made a lot of sense because of the work that I was doing with the Grand Ron, it was like, like learning about the plants and the ecosystems, you know, and, yeah. and as well as the minerals and then the landscape architecture program, you know, for, you know, very design oriented around creating parks and playgrounds and different things. But it was also, again, learning more about, um, not just native plants, but, you know, plants in general and how they can be used, you know, in landscapes and, and kind of thinking about public spaces and whatnot. Interesting. And of course, with that came mapping and that mapping um, and starting to learn like more like GIS and, you know, thinking about the topography maps and even the geology maps and using geology maps as a way to like understand and learn about the land that I had previously just gone out and collected stuff from without really knowing did you have you know, any the, sort of understanding of geology before you started collecting stuff or did you have to uh, learn it along the way? I I mean, I kind of just taught and learned along the way. And yeah. So I've been, yeah, to like learn and just, you know, acquire books, you know, and I have a library of plants and minerals and geology stuff. And how and necessary has that been for learning where pigments are and, and how to find them? Um, I mean, it's not totally necessary, but I think it's, it's it's you know, a way of like respecting the land, you know, by learning about its origins. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's, that's how I approached it in the first was just like get in the car and go for a drive and, you know, and go for a hike and, and see what I can find in the mountains or along the rivers, or along the oceans. And in terms of just literally looking for colorful, you know, colorful dirt, eye, right. Colorful dirt. And, um, so that's really a good way to start, you know, it's one just getting out there and being physical and being present and being observant, and, you know, because you could drive past the site, you know, for years and not know about it, even with plants. It's funny because I, as I started to learn more about plants, it'd be like, oh, what's this plant, you know? And then once I like learned of its name, of its being, like all of a sudden I started seeing it a lot more, right? Like, oh yeah. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. You're like a all around me like, the whole time. <laughs> I've been ignoring so you for a decade. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's really important to be a servant. And, you know, nowadays it's, you know, with social media and stuff, I feel like, you know, people want, want the quick answer, you know, it's like people just use, you know, like Instagram as their like informational source rather than buying a book and reading it or doing the research, you know? And so I think that people just need to do, need to dig deeper and, and they need to like, you know, look into texts and, and read, read about plants or read about the geology because that information is out there. I mean, it's easy enough to like go in online and look at a geology map and then like, you know, follow those, that trail of information. And that's why you know, I was curious. Cause it seems to me like if you, you know, you learned that you got a specific type of, I don't know, red out of this, part of the geology that it would be fairly simple to look at a geology map and start predicting where else that you would find that red color. Um, so that's why I was kind of curious how much geology is informed and been helpful for your, your search for color. Cause it, 
it seems like it would be very, very useful for predicting where else you'd be able to find the stuff. Yeah, no, exactly. And there's some places where you, you know, you're not supposed to collect the geology because it's either in a national monument, national park, the state park, or, you know, of course it might be on other private lands that you can't access. And so if you know of a certain material and you want to see where else it exists, yeah, you get in, you know, look, you can look at a geology map or a soil map, which a lot of that stuff is available online for free, um, or you can buy a hard copy of a book or a physical map, you know, and, and start to reference it and look, you know, like, okay, well, here's this artificial boundary of a state park or whatever. Um, but this geology layer might not necessarily stop at that boundary that has been superimposed on the land. Usually and doesn't. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you should be able to like, yeah, like cross, you know, like look for places that are, you know, accessible because they are considered more, you know, public lands and, maybe aren't sensitive to, you know, people collecting stuff. And so, the, unfortunately, there's a lot of the colorful soils are on lands that are, you know, one pie considered sacred. Um, I mean, I would consider pretty much everything sacred, but some things are held of a higher value on yeah. a cultural level for things, you know. And so I think going out and collecting something and doing it in a place, and a lot of these, these things with these mudstones and these siltstones and sandstones, they're occurring in places where they naturally are one have already eroded out or, and they're further eroding out as sediments into the waterways. And so you can easily collect those materials without having to dig a giant hole in the ground or yeah. even leave any kind of a trace that you've ever even been there. Right. Because the soils and the sediments are like, are, you know, can be incur in massive deposits, you know, as you know, and if you've been through, not just Utah in Montana, but other things occur in much smaller veins of color pockets of stuff, you know? And so there are some things that are, that are priceless, you know, um, or I, I have a hard time. That's usually when I sell the paints, you know, the palettes that I've been selling, which I'm kind of like on the fence about for different reasons. But, um, but those I've like, I've made paints out of. And so there's like an added value to them. Yeah. Whereas and from Portland, an artist right now I've been talking to to help is doing an art project that's about Mount Hood, and she's working with the Warm Springs tribe and um, to to integrate some of their stories into this book that art book that she's making, and she wants to add some colors to that. And she's like, "Well, how much are the pigments?" I'm like, "I don't know. I mean, how do you put a value on something? You know, like I mean, there's the value of my time and energy going out and collecting it and finding it, and the years." that I put into that, you know, like, you know, 15 plus years of, of learning, being out learning yeah, the learning, um, you know, and then there's the time and the value of what it took for the earth to create that, you know, and how much of it is there? Is it a small deposit is it a large deposit, you know? So for me to put a price tag on something that I've essentially collected, it's like almost impossible. You know, I told her, I'm like, I'd rather not put a value on it. And if you want to trade me, something then you can decide what that trade is worth you know but uh, and there's other ones i won't even touch you know in terms of like you know the blue divinite spruce cones like there's no way i'm ever selling putting a price tag on that or selling that material because it's not really those, for me to do those and, are and gorgeous i saw that in your video on your website those are just gorgeous i would have never suspected that a spruce cone could turn bright blue like that yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's just a raw, you know, that's a material that 
one, I don't know for sure that that exact deposit was used and collected, but most likely it was. And there, there most likely is other deposits of Vivianite along the Oregon coast to the California coast, Washington, um, and other places. But there is reference to a blue, you know, clay being gathered by the tribes of that, you know, called that place home and, and yeah. call it that place. But so that, potentially that blue has been used for, you know, 13 plus thousand years, however long those cultural groups have been in that area. Um, did, did you find out about that one via one of the ethnographic texts? Um, I had actually found a reference to it in there, but I didn't really know. So back in, when I was working at the Grand Ron, there was uh, Lewis and Clark bicentennial. I can't remember what year that was. But the bicentennial happened, and they did like this public event at the casino parking lot in Grand Ronde, um, where we had booths set up, and people were coming through and learning about the cultural lifeways. Um, yeah. So we had like a bunch of plant-based stuff, and I had a, a whole mineral set up where I was processing and showing people how to make paints as they were coming through. And this one guy came from the coast who lived on the coast, and he. It sounds like he was out and about a lot, you know, looking for stuff because I think he was somehow unofficially tied to a museum. If he found anything like of cultural significance, he was taking it to like the local museum. Yeah. Um, put on potentially on display. And he mentioned something about seeing some kind of a blue. Um, and so he kind of gave me in the hillsides of this one area. And he, so he kind of gave me a general idea huh. of where it was at. And I went and looked and I looked in the hillsides and I wasn't seeing hardly anything. And I kind of was about ready to give up. And then at one point I looked down on the floor of the, of the, you know, a bay during like the low tide event. Um, I was out there and I started to see these weird shapes on the ground, which were the mineralized spruce cones. And you can't tell that they're blue on the inside and they're, and they're not all blue on the inside. It depends if they've gone through the process enough of, of being exposed to both essentially iron um, that were naturally occurring in the soils. Um, and then also phosphates that were naturally occurring from stuff breaking down in the bay hmm. to create hydrocyanin phosphate, which is essentially the Vivianite. And so, you know, uh, it was a matter of like, being out there, I had some a clue of like the area where he was talking about, but he was talking about deposits in the hillside and there's very little like in the hillside. And so, um, of stuff that I was seeing at least at that point in time. And over the years, the 10 years I've been going to that area, um, most of what I was finding wasn't in the hillsides. It was actually stuff that had been eroded out of the hillsides and left on the, on the shore or on the, on the ground in the bay. And so, I started looking for those cones, the shapes of the cones, which aren't blue on the outside. They're only blue. If they've gone through the process, they're only blue on the inside. And and there are supposed to be deposits of more just pure blue clay that are not mineralized spruce cones. But there's also what they call the, this, there's a blue gray clay that people see and think that it's VV9 and it's not VV9. It just turns it's blue at first and then it kind of fades to a gray once it's been exposed to air. Whereas VV9 is white to begin with 
And then once it gets exposed to air and sunlight, it turns blue. And so there's a lot of people will say like, Oh, I've seen some blue here and there and whatever. And, and, and it turns out to be like this, this, you know, blue gray clay, which is not the same. Which doesn't um, stay. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't stay. It's, it's a different. So, so, you know, there could be like more like physical, like clay deposits. It happens in, in some of the roots too. Um, but, you know, so the organic materials kind of like helps to facilitate the creation of it, but it's not necessarily, it can also occur on bones or, or shells. So there's like the blue babe, which is this bison that was found in Alaska that had blue, you know, like on its skin. Um, there's blue that's occurred cool. in burial sites in Europe where maybe someone was buried with their iron ax and it was sitting next to their bones on their body and they're buried in an in an either an iron rich soil or a waterlogged soil, an anaerobic soil, where everything can kind of do its thing and then have the proper reactions, right? And then it gets exposed. But the same with like mammoth tusks, like sometimes I like tusks and different things will be found with like a vivianite layer on them because of where the iron soils come in in contact with the phosphorus phosphate, you know, in the bones. Um, Interesting. So, I never knew yeah. things like this existed. Yeah. Yeah. There was a vivianite that was used in, you know, in even more old master paintings in Europe, uh, whether it be Russia or Germany, some of these different places um, where there would have been the right conditions for the vivianite to form. But vivianite is kind of a sensitive material in the sense that it can change what changes color based on exposure to air and light. But it also is impacted in part by pH. So even like certain binders will make your certain pigments a different color. So like yeah. the oil paint will make your color much darker and kind of have more of a wet, dark look to it. Whereas if you use a water-based binder, the pigments, the paints will dry closer to what the water, what the, what the raw pigment would look like before the water-based binder was added. Um, Hmm. So, and then like linseed oil has a high, you know, the pH is higher, you know, so it's, um, alters so, your color you know, a little bit. Yeah. It can alter, it can actually turn it kind of more black. Um, so there's certain binders that, you know, ideally you would, would or wouldn't use. Um, I mean, a lot of naturally occurring clays are kind of a binder in themselves. So depending on your use, you know, if you want that purity of that color, then it's almost better to maybe not even use just a traditional binder. Yeah, and just let the the binding action of the clay or the um to do the work itself. And, and so, yeah, it kind of really just depends, you know, on what you have flying around and what what the objective is, you know, and you know if this idea of like having a work of art lasts for thousands of years. <laughs> Which is kind of a funny thing, you know, it's like, you know, a, pe a petroglyph and a picture, you know, well, obviously a petroglyph is carved, but a pictograph is painted. And a lot of pictographs have existed for thousands of years and whether or not they used a binder or if they just rubbed clay onto a rock and it just stuck. Um, or did they use some kind of an egg yolk or saliva or blood or other plant-based, you know, prickly pear pad binder or whatever. I mean, there's lots of different things that you could use for binders, you know, but it really kind of depends on, I guess, what, what you're the doing objective with it. And what, um, you know, yeah. 
We talked about about pigments and and kind of what you're looking for. Uh, essentially, you're just looking for color anywhere out there in soil or clay or rock or whatever. Can we talk a little bit about processing it down? Like, what is what is the process look like of, from collecting in a raw state towards where you actually do put it in a paint or something like that? What do you have to do to it? Um, well, basically, you know, you try to collect it, you know, in a thoughtful and careful manner so that one, of course, you're, you're not making a big hole in the ground or causing destruction. Yeah. Um, if you're on a road side, you know, of course, you don't want to upset the Department of Transportation or whatever and cause erosion <laughs> kind of deal. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, yeah, you want to try to find some spots. You know, for me, I try to find places where it's kind of already offering itself up yeah. to you or to the world in the sense where it's kind of already eroding out of the ground. I mean, there's not too many times where I even need even like a hand spade shovel, you know, like, I mean, mostly I'm collecting stuff with my bare hands and I'll have a vessel. And this is, this is, uh, I mean, this is fairly easy to do in most of the Southwest because you have a lot of bare hillsides and eroded stuff. Other places may be a little more difficult, but in the Southwest, that's not unreasonable. No, no. And even the Northwest, I mean, well, I mean, for instance, Oregon is one third of it is covered in forest and the other two thirds of it is, very much like the Southwest, right? Like on the east side of the Cascades, it's pretty much the same same climate and conditions that you find here. Yeah. And you have a lot of the same similar soil, you know, whether you want to call them badlands, you know, or places where there's not a lot of vegetation, there's a lot of colorful soils, um, um, for lack of a better word. That's what they've called them, um, or the whoever, <laughs> whoever the, the land namers are. But yeah, so basically, I mean, in, even in the Northwest, like where there are, there's a lot of vegetation such as plants, you know, ferns and thick forests, you can still find road cuts in the forests or along the coast. You can find areas where the rivers or the oceans have also exposed layers. And that's, you know, so even in those conditions, you know, I would, I would prefer to find stuff along naturally occurring waterways out of, out of natural occurring yeah. scars, of course, roads make it easy to see um, when they've kind of rode through a hillside to see what's happening beneath that. But if there is a lot of vegetation, then you have to, yeah, you have to get below the vegetation, which hopefully you're not uprooting plants to get to something. And then you have to get down below the, the hummus or the topsoil layer where the organic matters has broken down and mixed with the sub soil horizon layers um so basically you have these horizons right like of a b c d situation where you know you get down to the parent rock right which is what things are like the parent rock is down below and it's kind of breaking down and becoming it's merging with the hummus layer and so you have like these different conditions that happen where water infiltrates down in and and the minerals are you know leaching and different things and so so yeah, anytime you can find um, areas where there's like a naturally occurring cross section of Earth, then you are able to to see a lot more of what's happening. You know, yeah. soil scientists and whatnot are doing amazing work trying to understand soils and stuff. And they, by as part of their educational process, will go out and 
you know, cut, um, create, you know, either use like the, um, the tool, essentially the pipe that you kind of push down into the ground that allows you to pull like a, a tube of soil out. Um, so you can kind of see the cross sections without making much of an impact. Yeah. Or whereas you could also like, you know, you with a shovel, like dig, you know, a square down, you know, however deep, you know, to kind of create, to see what's going on. And so I, I don't normally ever kind of get to that point, right? Cause I don't need to, if, if you're looking if you're just in looking the right for the places. scars and yeah, the places where things yeah. have already been exposed. I took a couple of, of soil classes in college. Um, my second major was uh, a plant and soils based one. And for those, we had probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 different pits around, uh, mostly in the valley that, that the college was in, but also up on the foothills and, you know, you know, within driving distance where we'd go out on field trips and yeah, our pits were about six feet deep and a couple feet wide. So you could get down in there and you could see all the different layers and take samples out of all of them and run a bunch of tests with them. Well, it was quite fascinating to be able to see all that. Uh, it's really cool. And I, I don't know why I'm drawing, drawing a blank on the actual name of the, of the tool that, you know, um, that you use for the soil. Um, it's essentially like the T it's like, you know, a T but it has the metal pipe that has like a, a section cut out of the pipe. So when you push it down, it, it essentially takes a core sample, take a core sample. Yeah. Yeah. With what's happening. And then you pull it out and you can look and at least you're kind of, you can kind of walk into an environment with that tool and like do a quick sample real quickly to see what's going on down below. You. I actually should probably try to get one of those for my own hmm. purposes. It's a pretty cool tool to have. And, but yeah, so mostly I just kind of look for the natural occurring places, and and then if if nature's already done the work, you know, of course, if you're going to collect material, you want to try to like collect pure samples that are you know free of leaf or pine needles or other stuff um, from the plant from the ecosystems above, and then of course some as you have dug down and done those, you've seen those pits, what they look like, you know, there's if you have a hillside, you might have like three or four shades of color in one hillside, you know? So oh yeah. Whether or not the a, a same, a, a shade of different shades of red or, or whatever, but ideally, you know, you're trying to kind of, for me, I try to collect samples from different hues of colors that are in the hillsides and kind of keep them separate from each other and then bring them back to the studio. And if they need to be cleaned of debris that could happen and then ideally kind of like labeling like where they came from or if you if you have any information on the geology you know you can start to like label stuff so you you know where it's you know you can always go back to that location if you want um but in terms of further processing it kind of depends on the nature of what you've collected and so if it is a mudstone then it might be just like cleaning off any organic material that you might have gotten in there and then starting to have the basic tools of a mortar and a pestle or a ball mill, um, which is essentially the ball mills can be made out of different materials, but you could have, uh, you know, a metal ball mill that's made out of whatever, a tube um, that you put steel balls in and then, you know, put your earth material in there and you close it up and turn it on and it spins and it, the balls 
grind up the materials down to a finer powder. Hmm. Um, they also ones out of porcelain. And they use that in a lot of the ceramic, you know, industry for like making glazes, ball mills. Yeah. But, but a mortar and a pestle works fine. It's definitely more laborious to use a mortar. It just depends on the scale of what you're doing. For just and, like a small project here and there for the average listener, though, a mortar and pestle would work just fine. Yeah. I mean, for years I just used mortars and pestles and a glass molar. So basically, you need know, the mortar and pestles could be like more of like the porcelain based mortar pestles that you get from like a chemistry lab or you could go to, you know, I tended to go to like back in Portland, I would go to like a mom and pops, like Chinese grocery store and find like these bigger mortar pestles that were not super like pocketed, you know, they're kind of smoother, but they were a good size. I don't know what the actual stone is, you know, if it's like a kind of hmm. a granite, you know, there's marble mortar and pestles that you can get. Um, so it kind of just depends, but yeah, so basically mortars and pestles and then some different sieves um, with different mesh sizes to sift. Yeah. You can also use the levigation process to like filter, which is back to like what nature is doing. But essentially if you have like a, like a one gallon jar, you can fill that with water and then dump your sample that you collected in there, stir it up. And then the big particles are going to, you know, any of the sandy kind of like the bigger particle stuff, rocks or sand is going to settle to the bottom within, you know, a, a minute. And then all that colored water that's still, you know, the pigment that's suspended, you can pour that off into another vessel or like a flat baking pan and let it settle. Um, and then you essentially have more of the finer material separated from the closer material. And, this is pretty um, much, so uh, this is pretty much exactly what we talked about with Andy Ward when we were ta- chatting with him about preparing natural clay for pottery is he did pretty much yeah. the exact same thing. Mix it in a bucket with a bunch of water until it's a slurry, and then he put his, his in a, a pillowcase to let the water seep through and keep the clay on the inside of the pillowcase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so essentially, like I like I went to a ceramic supply place in back in Portland, Georgie's, and you can get what they call a bucket sieve. So essentially, it's like a like a plastic a bowl with a like a fine mesh in the bottom of it that sits right on top of a five gallon bucket. So you okay. just can like pour, you can pour stuff in that, you know, I have some also like the old mining sieves, like in the geology departments and other industries, like they have like the stackable sieves that you can get, like, um, like, you know, go everything from like 20 mesh to 40 mesh to 60 mesh to 80 mesh to a hundred mesh, which hundred mesh, like if I'm, if I'm not using the levigation process, I might just use like a hundred mesh screen to sift the pigments before I then take that pigment and then add a binder and, and work it on the slab of a glass with a glass molar. Yeah. So that'd be other For, mortar pestle sieves. And then the glass molars, I would say essential, it's, you know, kind of expensive, but you know, I've had mine forever, you know, like, I mean, it's, I mean, I guess you could, you they could last. break it, but yeah, yeah. It's not going to go anywhere unless you like, or do something that you normally wouldn't want to do. <laughs> but, for, for, for those but, of us who aren't familiar with something like, 20 mesh or 100 mesh, how fine, like texturally, can you describe how fine of a powder you need to get this to? Um, so, I mean, I guess if anybody's out there is like a baker, you know, you can you have the little flour sifters 
um, that people use to f- sift the flour right before you make you know, baking it with it or whatever. And yeah. those flour sisters are, I don't know, probably closer to like a 20 or 40 mash, you know, or maybe a little bit finer. But so the, the larger the number um, or the smaller the number, the larger the opening. Okay. And, and at least when you're talking about meshes. Um, so yeah, so ideally like I would try to get it to a hundred mesh, which I don't know. I'm trying to think I could, I mean, I wouldn't, if, even if you like, I don't know what the size of a paper clip is. If you were to like unfold a paper clip and try to poke it through, that might be like, um, is it roughly like flower texture or is it a little coarser, a little finer? I would say it's, you know, I would say it's just as fine as a flower. I mean, Okay. That'll help a lot of us understand it, you know, put it in perspective like as you're looking for something roughly flower texture like. Yeah. Huh. So, I mean, some people make paints with thicker, grainier, chunkier material. <laughs> it just, I guess it just depends on what you're. It's a personal. What you want texture wise and what you want objective wise. Um, some pigments actually don't like to be, or minerals don't like to be ground down too much. Like, like azurite, malachite, and some of these more precious gem base colors, they say you can grind the color out of them if you grind them too much. Oh, wow. Uh, I personally have never really worked with those all that much to really experience that. But so the way that pigments work with painting, um, so when you, when you, even when you talk about grinding the a natural pigment, like, let's say azurite down too much, you might be grinding down the irregular surface, which allows for the refraction light to happen less than, you know, um, to to a smaller particle size, which allows less light to pass through it. And so that's, I think that's kind of where that, where they talk about when you kind of grind it too much, but with the clay material stuff, you know, there's less of that kind of, you know, to be worried about. Um, but the I, more you start to process it and levigate it down to the kind of like the brighter the color gets, you know, so um, it kind of goes both ways, I guess a little bit. Yeah. On that note, um, kind of the brightness uh, I've, I've dabbled with natural dyes a little bit and some of them are really uh, permanent and long lasting and other ones tend to fade. Do you yep. have that same, thing going on with the natural pigment pigments as well. Do some of them last really well and other ones just fade away relatively quickly? Uh, Most, most mineral pigments are, are very light, fast and stable. Um, the ones that start to kind of get into that realm where they might change or shift are, are mostly like the copper based colors, you know, like might change based on exposure to air. Um, so like, those, those azurite and malachite stuff can potentially shift based off of exposure to oxidation. Um, and even like, again, the Vivianite could shift based on the binders that you use, um, the pH. Um, it, I think normally it shifts from the white to blue in its natural state. And once it reaches that blue, it doesn't as, as in its natural state or probably, you know, it doesn't fade. But if you then turn it into a paint, depending on your binder and how you 
how you handle it, especially with, with the, the nature of the binder, then those colors might shift again, like I said, like to like a black or whatever. But most minerals, most of the iron-based minerals are very, very stable. Um, okay. A lot of the plant-based stuff that you would use for dyes or inks or making them into lake pigments, some are like indigos, much more light fast. Matter root and like cochineal are fairly light fast. So not all plant-based dyes and lake pigments are, are equal um, in terms of their ability to stay, you know. Um, yeah, that's something I've so definitely noticed with my few experiments in dyeing. Yeah. And then, of course, like if you're dyeing and you're, you know, dyeing a fabric that you're washing, you know, it's getting, you know, treated, you know, kind of harshly with whatever soaps and, you know, heat and cold and this and that, right? Whereas a work of art... <laughs> And it's not going to be like something you're wearing and you're sweating on and you're exposing yeah. to direct sunlight, you know, like most artwork is inside and it's not exposed to direct sunlight. Um, so in some cases you could use some of that plant-based stuff that's not as light fast for fine art. If it's not going to be exposed to light and, and air, if it's sealed up, right. Cause those are the two things that are kind of, that, you know, are altering weather colors, weather in a way is both the air and the sun in the, in the UV light. Hmm. And so if you can protect stuff from that, then that, you know, that helps keep it, you know, do, do you end up using most of your pigments for paint then? I mean, you've, you've mentioned things like inks and uh, dyes and things like that as well. Uh, what, what can the pigments be used for and what are they not used for? Or not good for. Uh, I mean, I mostly have used them more for pigment for, for pigments for making paints and painting with. Okay. Um, it could easily be used for yeah, adding you know color to your plaster for your your you know Adobe or lime plasters if you wanted to color them for your home. You know, they could be used in ceramics. Um, okay. But personally, I would not call myself a dye expert or. You know, I, you know, even though I got my, the master's of landscape architecture has kind of like changed my focus to involve plants more. And then I'm growing indigo, you know, here in Taos, I'm going to have a dye garden. Yeah. Um, so I'm wanting to shift some of my focus from minerals to plants for diversity of reasons, um, even the minerals and stuff and, and making different paints and binders. And there's always room to learn and grow and, but definitely in the whole dye world, that that's a whole nother ball game, and ceramic world is a whole nother oh, yeah, ball game that I, yeah, kind of get my my feet wet in, you know, and wanting to play with, and so, so I'm in part in, in growing indigo, the Japanese indigo, and I'm actually going to be growing, um, experimenting with growing this wild indigo called Baptisia australis, that is native, is a native plant to much of the southwest midwest area um it grows it's funny because it says it grows in texas and oklahoma and further east and it's cold hardy to zone three and taos is at seven thousand feet is zone five so zone three is like really cold yeah um so it's a hardy plant whereas the japanese indigo will die at you know frost and other indigo bearing plants are more like semi-tropical tropical like environments you know and so 
We used to, to have woad in northern Utah all over the place as an invasive weed. It had been brought over at one point as a dye plant and then escaped and it was yeah, all over the hillsides. And I yeah. meant to experiment with that one more. I dabbled with it a little bit, but you get a beautiful blue yeah. color out of that too. Yeah, and that, it's funny because actually two summers ago, I did a trip. I did the same thing. I went down to southern Oregon. I found a bunch of invasive woad growing down in the Cascade Siski National Monument. I actually talked with the Class B noxious weed people from the USDA. Yeah. gave me some GIS shape files of where all these invasive woad stands were. Yeah. And they actually had people that get paid to go out and, and harvest, you know, and cut out, hopefully, maybe they're spraying, I don't know, but they're essentially going out to, like, kill the woad plants. And so I got permission to go out and essentially go out and collect the plants, you know, before they went to seed and even the seeds themselves have blue in them. So you can, you know, if, as long as you're not just helping distribute the seeds out, you know, um, into that landscape, you know, you can essentially collect the first year biomass, which is what is ideal for the woad. And then the second year, because it's kind of like this weird biennial plant, like it'll seed and then grow. And then the next year, it'll kind of like go to flower and then seed again. Right. So, yeah. Um, kind of so like a carrot. Yeah, the first year it puts down roots and grows leaves. And then the next year it puts up a flower stock and a bunch yeah. of little yellow yeah. flowers all over the top of it. So, so yeah, uh, we got to, I went out with some friends, some other um, people that my friend Brittany does, does a bunch of indigo dye work and some other kind of like, wild crafter community stuff. And uh, we went down in there and, and collected a bunch of the stuff and took it back to a camp and boiled it up. And then we, I, I coined the term wood warriors. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and, like going out to like, you know, collect the, collect the wood and, you know, from, you know, it's invasive. It actually wasn't, it didn't seem super invasive. Actually the places that where it was growing was, in a burn area that had occurred. And so it was kind of like one of the first colonizer plants to move in, you know, after the, and then, but you know, in the healthy forest areas around that area, it didn't really exist. Interesting. So it's, it's, yeah, I don't know how much it's like, you know, and there was other plants that were grown in the, you know, in the recent burn, um, you know, that were, that were native plants. And so there was a combination of, I mean, even mullein is like some of these things grow in places where it's just harsh conditions, you know, like mullein's not native here, right? It's naturalized. Um, some are more dominant and take over places. And so it's, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting term to kind of th- consider and think about in terms of what's, what's invasive, what's not, and yeah. at what level. But, but yeah, so my, my relationship with the, even the indigo, well, one, there's not too many blues available, right? In nature, in mineral form. And basically you have Vivianite I, and you have lapis, you know, and lapis is very much geologically related to Afghanistan and Chile. Um, Azurite is more exists in, yeah, in the Southwest, but it still doesn't like, you know, just occur in like these masses that, you know, that are open to the public, you know, like most of those asteroids probably existing in, in areas where now some large copper mine company owns. Yeah. And even half the turquoise mines here in New Mexico are 
are owned by non, you know, they should be like, you know, it's like they should be like owned by indigenous Pueblos, you know, like to the area, I think, you know, like it's weird that like what was a historical um, precious material that was, you know, used in jewelry um, is now owned by somebody else, you know, Um, whereas a lot of the sediment stuff is more, um, more commonplace, right? It's less rare. I don't know. There's less mining excavation that actually needs to happen for it, you know, and most people so, are yeah. going to care if they see you out there collecting a little bit of uh, clay off the side of the road. They might yeah. care if they see you wandering around near the old mines trying to collect turquoise or something like that. So that's kind of why I was wanting to kind of combine my interest of paint making and dyeing and then also farming and the landscape artists are kind of thinking about this idea of like cultural landscapes, like, okay, well, how do I reduce my own footprint? You know, like even as a pigment hunter and growing some plants to do that. Um, I mean, I could also go wild harvest certain plants for dyes, but yeah. you could also grow in your own backyard. Right. Which that means you don't have to do the fossil fuels to get to a place to, to collect stuff. And, um, you know, there's definitely plenty of like, Scotch broom is another invasive plant that has lots of yellow flowers and you could go harvest as many yellow flowers as you want and you're helping to prevent it from going to seed by doing that. Yeah. And there's plenty of chamisa around here that totally goes bloom and like it would be hard to like <laughs> over harvest chamisa flowers, you know, for also a yellow. Um, but other plants are, you know, like larkspur was traditionally used as a blue dye, but the large fur flowers are more like delicate and smaller colonies. You know, it's not like a shrub that's got like thousands of flowers on each shrub. Right. Yeah. And so I think that certain plants like tend to be more ideal for harvesting because it just has more biomass to harvest from. And that wild indigo and that, that Ptusia australis is one of those plants that I really want to experiment with because it's cold hardy. It can actually survive here in New Mexico and Technically, it probably did and maybe does grow here in New Mexico. It just, if you look at the USDA um, information about it, you know, it just says like, oh, it's grown. It stops at the Texas border or the Oklahoma border. So I'm going to, I'm going to grow that here and see what happens. But I think it takes like potentially up to like three years probably to get the plant as a perennial established to, to, to get enough biomass to do anything with it. You know, same with the matter root, like, you, you know, from seed, it takes, it takes a couple like of years, years to, yeah. to even get the root or, or even other plants like camas, which is not for dye, but for food, um, you know, from seed, it takes like, you know, a few years before you'd have an edible bulb. Yeah. So you, you really need, you know, pretty good colonies, healthy colonies of certain plants in certain places in order to be able to harvest them without like impacting their, their range or their habitat or whatever. And so, but yeah, so the Japanese indigo just kind of gave me an option, an opportunity to, to play with a blue, um, to grow a blue that can be renewable source of blue. Whereas the Vivianite is super rare and, um, it just doesn't exist a lot, you know, in nature and maybe it exists more than we think or know of, but, but finding the sources 
that are also on lands that you can act is yeah it's not it's not super easy what what colors do you end up finding a lot of um i mean definitely i mean it depends on the place but yeah here i mean i mean there's a whole range of for the mural project that i'm doing that's for um the community center down in albuquerque um it's all going to be painted with the minerals I'm collect- I've collected around the Albuquerque Basin area of the middle Rio Grande. And, yeah. and I will be using some of the indigo that I grew up here in Taos as a supplemental blue um, and green kind of color for that mural. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that is not from the Albuquerque area, but it's, you know, if that's a watershed speaks, you know, it's trickling down, right? <laughs> it goes down the river downstream um and so i'll be using that color in some of you know in the mural but -hmm. most of what i collected is 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 from within like if if you think of like a concentric circle of mileage like center of albuquerque out is maybe like 30 mile radius i collected stuff for the middle rio grande basin that there's more but i you know i have probably like over 24 different samples of colors and they all range from you know, more earthier, brighter reds to more pinkish to, you know, um, there's some greens and yellows and other things, you know, so there, there's, you know, there's, okay. black, there's quite a variety. And, yeah. So I have, yeah, quite a few different shades and a lot of them really be like slightly different tones from each other, you know, but the whole point of the mural is at least part of it. There's the 3d portion of, of the mural. It's like a 3d carved topography, um, of, of the Sandias and the Rio Grande and the west of Albuquerque up into what they call the, the volcanoes or the Petroglyph National Monument. But that whole area, I collected soils from to essentially paint the geology map on top of the 3D surface that I had carved with the CNC router. Um, yeah. And so I have that portion of the mural. It's like an eight foot by eight foot carving of that topography of that land they'll be painted with that land. And then there's another eight foot by eight foot panel to the right. And another eight foot by eight foot panel to the left that will be two dimensional, but they'll have um, other imagery based on kind of more like endemic species in native endemic species that whether they're threatened or endangered or not um, will be integrated into the, that imagery of, of the mural, but it's also kind of overlaid on top of like, um, other mapping stuff. Um, you know, in the past, I normally, when I was you know, before the landscape architecture program, when I painted, it was just pure, like just play with the paint and see where it takes you, you know? Yeah. Now I'm kind of having all these other, um, I mean, I can still paint that way, but, um, but with this project in particular, it's a lot more like research based, you know, like learning about the land, collecting the materials, learning about the geology layers, learning about the species, like how they all tie together, you know. Um, and that's that's kind of what I'm hoping to, to do with more like this mobile lab idea where I kind of can go on the road with paint-making equipment and a CNC router and other equipment to like go visit other communities and, and do projects, community projects together where we can, you know, start to learn from the land, you know, learning through these maps, whether it be geology maps or ecologically focused maps or whatever. And, and, you know, 
learned about what exists and why, you know, why is this plant grown here, you know, and not over there, whatever. So the idea is to be able to have this mobile lab that I can go and um, do like, you know, I can do projections onto the box truck or onto a wall and kind of have like an educational environment, you know, where you can like have these projections be a way to like talk about the place yeah. and learn about it. Um, and then, the same time create a work of art out of it you know so so that's kind of where things are kind of evolving a little bit move Again, towards that to, in the future yeah yeah at least i mean i i just don't i'm not really again with like reducing the carbon footprint it's like it was easier in portland you know to have like you know a class where you have 10 15 people come to you and maybe some of them are from portland or some of them traveled from out of state or out of country yeah, um, and that's fine, but here in Taos, I'm not really interested in having ten people from out of state come here, and even without COVID being an issue, um, not that I'm super concerned about it, but I am wanting to really kind of think about those things in the sense that okay, well, if I have ten people come to me to take a class from out of state. Um, or out of out of the city of Taos, then they have to pay for, you know, gas, fuel to get here, whether that be in a car or a plane, they have to pay for lodging, they have to pay for the class. And that's, you know, and then there's only so many people that have the time and capacity to be able to like leave and do those things from the environments where they live. Yeah. And and then then they're coming to a, a, an environment that is foreign to them. Um, and it just makes more sense for people to, Get, to try to find stuff around where they live rather Learn than their own landscape country and then collecting stuff from a different place and taking it back with them. Yeah. And, and so really you're only reaching so many people, so many communities that, you know, are able to actually like leave if you got kids, you know, or if you have a nine to five job, like most likely you're not going to be able to just, you know, depart and go take a class for a weekend or whatever. No, that would be so, difficult for me at the moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then most people it is, you know, and so I, I, you know, rather than catering to the people that can't afford, you know, or that really don't have as many restrictions to be able to come to me, it makes more sense for me to go to a community of 10, 20 people and learn about their place and help them learn about their own place um, and be on and be more sustainable within their own environment. Yeah. Whether it be with, collecting mineral pigments to make paints or doing dye stuff or whatever. Um, and so I think that makes a, for me a lot of sense. And then I, for me, I also want to be able to, to turn that into not just an educational situation, but also creating like a public, you know, a, a work of art together, like kind of more of a collaborative thing. And I wanted to do that with this mural too, is have like, you know, be more collaborative. Some like of the I'd love locals to, involved. Yeah. Yeah. I do classes, but more like with locals, you know, like, um, and or just focus more on a longer term residence artist, the artisan, artisan residence, the pigment hunter artist residence program would be focused more on working with individual artists or a couple of artists, you know, for longer periods of time um, and, and artists that I'm inspired by their work. Um, and it doesn't have to be a collaborative like thing, like, but I can help facilitate processing materials if, if you have a painter or a ceramic artist that wants to come in and like 
use the equipment and process the materials and experiment and kind of get more in depth. So I just, I just want to have more in depth relationships with other artists and other people and the land rather than this, this like weekend excursion where people just kind of <laughs> go come and take and then leave. <laughs> That's kind of where I've kind of gotten to, I think, you know, because we just, we all only have so much time and energy and, and I'd rather not just scratch the surface, but try to go deeper yeah. um, in the relationships, you know, um, and just, and there's just been less communication amongst people, you know? And so it's Sadly. hard to yeah. make connections with people and have conversations and whatnot. And so it's even a better time to even try to do some of that research on your own and understand it and, and look at the land and understand it from, you know, go back, go back before cultures even exist, you know, go back to that geology layer. And these, these geology layers have been around a long time, you know, a lot longer than, you know, any humans have ever been anywhere on the planet. So, you know, if you want to learn about a place like every culture did when they first were came into this world, they created relationships with the land and the materials, right? Start studying what's around you. Yeah. Yeah. Like learn about it, you know, like learn about not just the one plant that you want to go and harvest, learn about the whole community of plants that that grows within and and what that soil, what soil it requires, how much moisture it requires. Is it on the Northern facing slope? Is it on the Southern facing slope? (laughs) Um, You know, I think that all these things are, they're all obviously tied together, you know, and if we want to get back to the root of a culture rooted in place, then whether or not, again, whether or not we're native to a place or not, you know, um, even as a, you know, a newborn into this world still have to, in growing up in a place, even if you're born and raised in Taos, New Mexico, you still have to learn, you know, like we're we're fortunate that we have these systems, you know, where all these knowledge bases exist that people have written books or made maps or done all these things. If we, if we all had to start from scratch every generation, we wouldn't be getting very far. (laughs) Very far. And I think that's what, you know, that's what's really hard about a lot of Uh, it is that most people are, you're born into whatever you're born into, you know, (laughs) Um, in terms of resources, you know, like who can afford to, you know, buy paints, you know, to make art, you know, who can afford to buy whatever, you know, clothing that's, you know, dyed with indigo and a lot, and a lot of things are tied, you know, like even over in Europe and in, you know, Japan and China, like a lot of colors were tied to wealth, you know, like, yeah, it was a wealthy who could afford to get their colors changed or their clothes changed to a different color. Yeah. So Things the, are expensive. Yeah, had access to blue and other people didn't. Blue and you know, purple, purple and crimson. and Yeah. Yeah. So, so nowadays we're a little more fortunate because you can go buy whatever color car you want, you know, or whatever color. <laughs> you, um, you know, and so it's, it's weird to think about color in that way, you know, but it, historically pigments, Rated based on their value and their rarity, and so it's a. Uh, it used to be a lot harder and more time intensive to get colors around you than it is these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Um, so just making all this even more, you know, more, more precious and more valuable to 
to look at local colors and, and local pigments and and some that are that are more responsible uh, ethically and environmentally you know like you know if you're getting dyed clothes that are coming from india or or wherever you know like how is that as are those dyes getting flooded into the rivers in the waterways or you know what's what's happening you know on that level and so yeah i think that down to it like for me that's what the pigment hunting isn't just pure about the pigment and the color it's about it's about that experience of learning and trying to understand what it is that makes those places unique, you know? And yeah. yeah. So, Hmm. um, before we wrap it up, Scott, any last quick tips for folks who are interested in going out and finding color on their local landscape, anything that last words of wisdom for them? Yeah. I mean, I think that's really just, um, just being observant and being respectful and just kind of reading those signs, you know, of, of one, of course, understanding of, you know, unfortunately there are property boundaries and there are, you know, culturally sensitive places, um, you know, and so I think that really, you know, just kind of like learning about places that are that you can kind of get access to that are um, that's, you know, respectful both to, to the land and, and, and to, to the, you know, the indigenous inhabitants. And, and then of course you have more of the modern, you know, property owners and inhabitants. And so I think that, you know, just, yeah, doing a little research. I mean, there's plenty of information out there. Um, one app that I use a lot, is an app called Rocked R O C K D that you can get for your phone, and it pretty much is essentially like a geology app that you can use to like look at wherever you're at, and you know it has a map that you can pull up, and you can essentially click on different colored geology layers, and and it will give you information about what that geology layer is. And then it has like cool. even literature references and stuff. And so that's an easy way to like, I've never heard of that one, but it sounds like a cool one. Yeah. R O C K D without the E <laughs> rocked. Okay. Um, but that, you know, there's other, there's, you know, soil maps and other things that are out there to the USDA. But um, in terms of something that you can have on your phone, you know, and then just other, you know, there are maps that, you know, hunters use that tell you like who owns what land and what's public land and what's not. And yeah. But I think that, you know, those are the things, you know, like ultimately I would try to like, get people to, to really do the research and understand like what that geology history is. I mean, you don't need to know what it is to like play with color, but it's, it's a good starting point to like at least, um, have it be a, a learning process, you know, and so that you can understand what's happening, you know, in your place, you know, and what's going on around you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anywhere that you want to point people so they can learn more about your work or follow along and see what you do. You know, my pigment hunter website, which, um, I, I uh, my intent is to get on there and make some updates here in the new future. I'd like to, figure out ways to like have it be more resourceful um yeah 
And then, you know, I have another website for my artwork to Scott Sudden Art. But again, it's, it, I think with social media, like I've, I've definitely done less maintenance, website maintenance than because Instagram is just easy to feed stuff on. And But I, I am wanting to kind of like update those to have more ongoings with my own, hopefully, you know, future traveling with more of the mobile lab and the work that I want to do here with more of a, a, a you know, engaged, longer engaged artists and residents program. But I mean, um, I mean, there's plenty of other books and stuff out there. Um, You're in the process of writing one at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I've been trying to, I, my intent was to do that last, last winter, you know, and then COVID hit and I just was like, trying to get settled and, you know, half my stuff was back in Oregon. And yeah, I think that, you know, there's Nick Nito um, wrote an amazing book called the organic Artist. you know, and it has a lot of different skills in there from making paints to making brushes to making inks and the yeah. Toronto make ink, you know, the, um, Jason Logan's book. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of books out there, um, that are about making paints and inks and stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pushing the idea of more of doing a series of books that are not necessarily just like a how to like paint making book, but more like a project focused book that like focuses on like, for instance, the first one might be about my public art project of, which is also involves making the paints, you know, and the, of doing the 3d mural and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think what I would like to do is have the pigment hunter book be like more of a series of books that focuses on different projects, you know, and they, some of them could be my own projects or collaborative projects. And so that for me, I, I'd rather, like I said, have maybe a series of books that kind of focus on different things or, um, so it won't be necessarily just about my work, but like, so it's more about like the art of pigment hunting. So, I mean, that sure that can talk about, going out and collecting stuff and whatnot, but then it kind of showcases like a specific project, you know, and kind of documents the the processes, you know, for that work of art. And that's in the future some point. <laughs> when you get around to writing it. Yeah. I know how that goes. Yeah. I have a couple books that I want to write in the future at some point, but I don't know when they'll ever happen. So get to them eventually, but Thanks for chatting with, chatting with me, Scott. Yeah. I really, really, really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Folkcraft Revival Podcast. As always, the show notes and links from this episode can be found over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash whatever the episode number is. Uh, I should tell you right now in your, your podcast player what episode this is. I appreciate you tuning in. If you have any guest or topic suggestions or any other feedback for that matter, I'd love to hear from you shoot me an email over at daniel at folkcraftrevival.com. If you want to help the podcast grow, the best way to do that is recommend and share it with others that have like interests. Second best, go give me a rating and review over in the Apple Podcast slash iTunes platform. Um, that's the biggest podcast platform, and doing it over there will really help me rise in the, the search rankings and show up to a few more people when they're looking for stuff. So... Uh, In fact, while you're at it, just mash the subscribe button while you're there. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Now let's uh, get out there and make something.